Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Today, we want to give you one more bonus episode of the Christ and Culture podcast to tide you over until the start of season three, which will be just in a few weeks. And once again, in this bonus episode, we're sharing with you a lecture from Dr. Andrew Davison, which he delivered to our mentorship program this spring. But first, let's begin with our segment called Together We Go, in which students and alumni of Southeastern Seminary share how they're fulfilling the Great Commission in their vocations. Our guest today is Matt Williams. I work in marketing, um, specifically in digital marketing and paid social. So if you're ever on ESPN, you see advertisings of videos or banner ads, and it's sometimes related to something you've already been searching for. I'm kind of behind that. And then also uh, promoted ads that you see on paid social platforms like Facebook, managing campaigns and budgets for clients. My time at Southeastern um, prepared me for being in the workplace and the corporate world uh, by helping me think critically and understand and look at different worldviews people are coming from, understanding that trends and ideas that come about don't just happen in a vacuum. So having that bigger survey um, of maybe kind of where we are at culturally has helped me. Um, as well as just encouraging me to glorify God and all that I do not to, and also not to make an idol of work or to be just idle at work. Please pray for me to be a light where I'm at, to do my job diligently as I interact with a wide variety of people to serve people. Well, um, it's very easy for me to be competitive. And so just to have a humble spirit, um, at my work and to genuinely care for others, and then just trust the Lord where he has me to grow where he has me. Um, so just trusting him. I am Matt Williams, and together we go. Thank you, Matt, for sharing with us. Now, let's jump into the lecture. Dr. Andrew Davison is the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences at Cambridge University. So I want to talk about knowing, um, knowing and finitude, which is going to bring me onto a topic which I think is going to be the theme of my next book. So I always thought that the book on participation would have a book um, that went alongside it, which would be on mediation. How is it that one thing acts through another or is apprehended through another? I think these are really important theological themes. Um, and so maybe there are, there's a trio of books I wanted to have something on finitude, which I may maybe get done in the next couple of years something on participation and something on uh, mediation but they're all kind of tangled up with one another um so finitude and mediation we're finite so we're only ever going to know about things in a finite way and in particular we're only going to know about god in a finite way um what does what does that imply uh so i so to pick up something that's in the participation book it's actually central to the participation book um thinking about knowledge is a really good illustration of a principle which someone called uh, Tom Aquino calls the modus principle, um, that you find it right from antiquity, that when one thing is received into another, it, it comes into it in the manner of the recipient and not in the manner of the donor. So it's given a kind of pithy 
you know, 12 word, eight word Latin uh, description, but uh, I'll, I'll kind of pad it out a little bit. When one thing is received into another, it comes to be within the recipient, not in the manner of the donor, but in the manner of the recipient. So um, think about knowing an apple. So if you're a realist, then to know an apple is to receive something from the apple. But importantly, the apple comes to be in my mind in my way, which is a mental way, rather than the way in which it's in the apple, which is in a physical way. And I'm very glad because if I had a physical apple in my brain, that wouldn't be very good. But I can have uh, the apple mentally in my mind. So the apple is received into my mind according to the manner of the mind, which is a mental uh, mode. And finitude um, is going to play out in this way. So the, the infinite um, is always received into the finite, finitely. Um, I guess the, the incarnation is, uh, I, I may think about that differently. I think it's important that the reception of God um, doesn't make Christ's humanity anything other than what it is, anything less than finite. Um, but I'm not a canoticist. In fact, I'm very, very much not a canoticist. I think the absolute, whole, complete plenitude of God is um, in Christ, not some cut down uh, version. Anyway, finitude means mediation. Whatever we know, we receive into our minds uh, in, a, in a finite way. And in particular, God is known and revealed to us um, by means of words, images, ideas that are um, bound up with our finitude. And I'm going to give you a little bit more of that poem that I read yesterday by Louis McNeese. So yesterday it was about contentment and not wanting a hundred wives and, and forswearing from his son that um, infinite, which is too obvious and so on, a beautiful poem. Well, he also says um, in, uh, in this poem, if God is boundless as the sea or sky, the eye bounds both of them and him. We always have the horizon, not to swim in, but to see. God is seen with shape and limit, more purple towards the rim. This segment of his infinite extension is all the God of him for me. And the thing that I really want to get at in this, this talk today is that I think it's really helpful to think about finitude and infinitude in qualitative terms rather than quantitative ones. One of the things I want to do in my finitude book, if I, if I write it, um, is to say that when theologians start invoking quantitative paradigms, especially in contrasting God and creatures, it's almost always going to take us in unhelpful avenues. Um, so I want to particularly then stress that if we're talking about the way in which we know God finitely, I'd, I'd much rather talk about that qualitatively than quantitatively, because um, um, the idea of a quantity, it almost always then ends up lo looking like our knowledge of God or revelation is somehow just massively truncated. In fact, kind of almost so infinite, infinitely truncated because we've just got, and maybe McNeese isn't particularly helpful here when he talks about this segment of his infinite extension. Maybe that's not very helpful. But if we think about uh, um, this qualitative angle of, of mode or manner, then, then we're really much more helpfully in the manner of, in the, in the, in the area of mediation by which one thing really does come to be in the other, but according to its mode. So I'd want to say that the finitude of our knowledge of God is to do with history, words, culture, this kind of thing. And that it really is that God comes to be known in those things. There really can be a human encounter with God, a, a literary encounter with God, a scriptural encounter with God, a, a human encounter within the person of Jesus. Um, you know, God really can uh, have God's fingerprints on our 
on our culture and our liturgy and our prayer and so on. Um, and it just seems to me that's a really helpful way of holding together finitude and fullness. You know, that our, our language can be as full of God as it's possible for a language to be, um, our culture, our stories and so on. Um, and that, that gets us away from thinking of it as being some kind of truncation. It's what it means for these things to be alive with, uh, with the, the knowledge of God. Um, so I think that time is, is a useful angle uh, on this, that our reason is discursive and strung together in time. I, haven't, I need to find out where he says it, but Aquinas says somewhere that um, we know all things, even knowledge of the most spiritual and abstract things, through the, through the stories of times and places. Um, which I think is really arresting, uh, arresting statement. But uh, everything, even God, is known through the stories of times and places. Um, I haven't talked to anybody about this, I think, in America, but there's a new initiative of the Church of England, which is starting in the autumn or the fall, you'd say, uh, called the Centre for Cultural Witness, which is going to be based at Lambeth Palace, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury's um, palace in London. Uh, and the current Bishop of Kensington, so one of the assistant bishops in the London diocese, um, who used to run St Melitus College, one of the evangelical colleges in the Church of England in, in London. Um, he is uh, stepping down as Bishop of Kensington to run this thing for three or four, uh, three or four years before he retires. Um, and uh, he's, he's got big, uh, big aims. He wants to uh, raise two million pounds and he's almost all the way for that. Uh, and the idea is, I think, to recast what it means to be doing apologetics in this idea of attention to culture and story and, 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 and biography. And basically, I haven't talked to him about this, but basically what Aquinas says, the, the stories of times and places. So I'm trying to think what the, there's gonna be this new magazine, online magazine with lots of wonderful people writing for it. And it's gonna be creed, culture, comment and character. That's right, creed, culture, comment and character. Um, and everything written to be read by those who are outside the church, but full of theological resources. Um, and I, I think of it uh, um, as uh, this kind of, of a kind of qualitative finitude. What does it mean for uh, the, the faith and um, knowledge of God to be expressed? Anyway, that's maybe a bit of a side point, but I'm really excited about this. I think it's a, one, of the, one of the best things the church has done for, um, for quite a while. Um, and I hope it will be a resource for everyone everywhere. Uh, whilst I'm talking about this, this idea of um, our our thought being being kind of time bound and it's all about process. Um, I'll make a couple of uh, side comments. Um, I think this is really an important part of us being um, at ease with our finitude and inhabiting our finitude to recognise that thought has to follow thought and it can be a labour and it happens in time. So um, the, the terms of some universities in the old universities in England are still uh, named after the medieval quarter days when tax was due. Uh, so uh, both in Oxford and Cambridge, the first term is called Michaelmas after the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. And then we have Lent term and Easter term here in America. They have In um, Oxford, they have Hillary and Trinity. Um, so happily, the beginning of term, beginning of the academic year is, uh, is named after the Feast of uh, St. Michael and All Angels. And I have a kind of party piece sermon that I uh, preached a few times um, about saying to the students, you know, you're not angels. Angels see everything in one go. They they, they have all knowledge just in a flash. Uh, but we're not like that. We're we're finite creatures of time and space, and we have to string one idea after another. And that's okay. That's what we are. So when you're in the library and it's hard work, then you think, well, 
this is just part and parcel of what it means not to be an angel. And it's part and parcel of the dignity of being and the specialness of being a human being. But we've got to work at it. We've got to, we've got to um, go from idea to idea and, and, and labour at it. Uh, but I also think this is something important about tradition. So uh, this idea of, of uh, thought being finite and it being in this qualitative sense of being time bound and sequential. It's not just about an individual human process of thought or even a human lifetime. It's also about the, the long duration of the church's life and that um, part of what it means to be for truth to be disclosed and apprehended in a finite way according to time is for it to be apprehended over the centuries uh, and uh, of of our traditions so um, I um, I was asked yesterday what I thought you know keeps people going and uh, tips for ministry I think it's really helpful to 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 belong to a tradition to belong to a tradition of thought to belong to an ecclesial tradition um, and I do think it's marvelous that in the last few decades I suppose the last century there's this been great this great turn to humanism and we have much more of a sense of what we share in common and I think that's really important but I don't think that stands against the sense that we apprehend it within a particular tradition within the particularity of a tradition and I would always say to somebody who's interested in theology or you know anybody really um, get to know how it hangs together in the thought of one person or, or one tradition um, and then be eclectic and expand on it and be a Bartian who loves Bonaventure or you know whatever. But um, I think just to have a completely ragtag kind of magpie-like, uh, well, a bit of a bit of doctrine of creation from Aquinas and a bit of uh, soteriology from Luther and a little bit of eschatology from I don't know uh, Maltman um, or something. I just don't think that is as helpful as as seeing how. It hangs together within the thought of a person or a tradition, um, and partly because then you can see how that how it connects. I think so much of the of the fun and the and the vitality of theology is in the, is in the relation of doctrinal topics. But um, so I really you know want to commend to you: uh, be ecumenical, but also don't be afraid of inheriting uh, and of inhabiting a tradition, because I think that's how the finitude of our thinking works. Uh, so another uh, great angle I think on this idea of of, of, of apprehending God. Uh, and, and the truth always being in coming to us in, in finite mode is this idea of um, of accommodation. So there's been some great writing on this. There's a, a, a book edited by Carson a couple of years ago with a great essay on accommodation by someone with the delightful name of Glenn Sunshine. Um, and uh, and then Ben In, I think he's called, it's probably on the shelf right in front of me, um, wrote a book called The Footprints of God, which is absolutely magnificent um, study of this idea of accommodation down the centuries in Christian and Jewish thought. So it's the idea that um, if we're going to communicate, we, if we're going to be good communicators, we have to speak in a way that can be received by the, those we speak to. Um, and that God being the supreme communicator is also the supreme um, uh, practicer of this idea of accommodation, um, that God accommodates the message that can be received uh, by us. Um, in our finitude, but in, especially in this kind of qualitative sense of our, of our culture, of our history, is really important for me in science and religion work, you know, uh, where people are saying, oh, well, you know, does, uh, um, why, why, why does, why do you read that pi is three uh, in, in one kings, wherever it is? And, uh, you know, what about the Genesis account? And what about this? And you have to say, well, you know, God could presumably have dictated um, Maxwell's equations of electromagnetic radiation 
but they wouldn't have meant anything. And God's a good communicator. So God speaks to us in the way that we can receive. Um, it's why I'm not, um, that I think that it's interesting that Augustine, in his exposition of, of, um, of Genesis, calls it the literal meaning of Genesis, but he goes, in a sense, way beyond just treating it as a scientific textbook. And I think that that's part and parcel of that is he recognises that that's just a sort of anachronism to think that God is dictating a, a science textbook and that actually its literal meaning um, is, uh, is more than that. Anyway, so I think this idea of accommodation is, is really important, really fruitful. It's been um, um, uh, written about really, really well in recent years. Now, let me find myself in my notes where I am. Um, so with finitude in mind, I thought it might be interesting to ask, what is theology for? And, and maybe to suggest that we should have relatively modest aims. So um, one angle on finitude, which I think is really important, but I am not talking about it very much yesterday or today, is to do with teleology. You know, the idea of ends as goals. So we talk about the finality of something. It's the same root as finitude. Um, or we talk about the end of something. It's not just its termination, but it's its, its goal. Um, so if we ask what theology for, there's a nice way of combining both a sense of its finitude, but also of its purpose mm. and its directedness. Um, and so um, I've partly, thinking about this in recent years, by the fact that I tend to hang out with people who get very, very interested in detail, and I'm very interested in detail too. And I'm quite close to John Milbank and um, people who, who write very passionately about genealogies and about who influenced who and how it all, exactly when it all went wrong and so on. Um, and can be quite factious, you know, like plague on all Franciscan theology and so on. Um, and I think it's quite healthy for me to um, have to be engaged in all of that, but also to recognise, you know, Franciscan theology has been part of the salvation of a great many people. I might find all sorts of things about it not particularly palatable, but I kind of got to get over myself um, that there might be elements of metaphysics that I don't like, but, you know, the busy preaching the gospel and many people have been converted that way and it gives life to many Christians so I need to be not too obsessed about that. Um, so I've been quite uh, inter interested in the last couple of years about writing something on the idea of good enough theology. So you might know there's this idea of good enough parenting. I can't remember who came up with the idea, some of you will know, but uh, it's the idea that you give parents permission not to have to strive to be absolutely perfect parents because that is just a recipe for dis despair. What we really need is to help parents be good enough to make the right decisions in the difficult uh, times and uh, to recognise that they will make mistakes. Just got to try and hope that the mistakes aren't you know, too, too serious. And I've wondered with, a, with an image of uh, good enough parenting about the idea of good enough theology. I was at this conference in Cambridge a couple of years ago. It was on Trinitarian ontology. It was about metaphysics and ontology from a kind of Trinitarian perspective. And people were really splitting hairs. And so I was quite provocative in one of my introductions by saying, um, this is great, but we also need a good enough theology. By which I mean, what's theology for? Theology is for getting us home. You know, So eventually we'll see God face to face. We won't need even Thomas Aquinas then. Uh, but in the meanwhile, uh, we've got a journey to walk. We are in via on the way and our theology has to be good enough to get us home. And I think that can um, help us feel a little bit more... Um, at ease with the fact that it's finite and also about and just be a bit more uh, charitable about the fact that there are differences you know there are probably 
things that you think that are different from what I think and vice versa. Um, but, you know, let's hope that it's, it's doing its, its job of, um, of, of, of accompanying us on the way and pointing us you know, towards God. That's the important thing. Um, so, you know, our theology is never going to measure up to God's own knowledge of God's self. That's fine. That's not what it's for. And so I think, um, anyway, I, I could talk a lot more about this, but I've been interested in this um, idea um, in, uh, in recent years. And I tell it partly kind of against myself because I am the kind of person who can be, um, you know, really, really worked up about how terrible the university of being is. Um, but, uh, you know, over and against that, uh, you know, good enough theology, good enough to get us home. Um, and of course, uh, supremely, we're talking about uh, God who is revealed in Christ. Um, so having said a lot that's really, um, you know, in praise of, of philosophy, I also um, am wary of Christian accounts of God and invocations of philosophy that free, float freely from the particularity of how God is revealed to us in Christ. I'm going to come on to that a little bit more. Um, and particularly any, any detachment from the idea that God is as he is in Christ. So um, one of my favourite lines in all of Bart, it's in the, the Mystery of Christmas, I think, that part in um, Church Dogmatics 4.1, um, is he says, uh, the Christmas mystery shows us, this is my gloss, this is now Bart, for God it is just as natural to be lowly as to be high, to be near as to be far, to be little as to be great, to be abroad as to be at home. Uh, for God, it is just as natural to be lowly as it is to be high, to be near as it is to be far, to be little as it is to be great, to be abroad as it is to be at home. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons that I'm not a canoticist. I think um, that you know, God is as we encounter him in Christ. But it's not That's not God truncated. That's how God is. And if we encounter God in smallness, then the amazing thing is that we don't, we need to revise our view of, of what God is like. It's not that we say, ah, well, God is this, you know, in, infinite being and then has to become truncated to be in Christ. No, God is as he is in Christ. And if that doesn't, if that seems uh, to m mismatched with our, our idea of God, it's our idea of God that's got to go or be, um, be um, abridged. Anyway, that's a good way into thinking about so pretty much where I'm going to end, um, thinking about finitude, infinitude uh, and quantity. So it's very common to read or to say that God is infinite. Um, but contemporary talk about God's infinitude seems to me quite often to work in almost exactly the opposite way of how the Cappadocians first um, used that language. So they used the idea of infinitude apophatically. It's a very careful kind of uh, denial. So it's to say that God is, um, is beyond limitation, uh, but it's uh, to acknowledge that that means that God is beyond our comprehension as God. Um, but I think so often when people talk about divine infinitude now, they, they're saying, I know exactly what God is like. God is infinite. There, that's God sorted out. Got, got God, infinite. Um, and I think that it's also a problem to approach the divine attributes as if the key to them is just that they're infinite, as if that's what marks them out um, as divine. And I'm afraid Scotus is about to get it in the neck. Uh, again, for that, um, I just said that I would be charitable towards the Franciscans. Um, so I think there's a really important uh, work to be done in trying to disabuse ourselves of the idea that God is just like us or just some kind of being only bigger. So another great recent Dominican, Herbert McCabe, 
um, said, God is not like the president of the United States, only bigger and invisible. And um, I think that that uh, that works for whoever's in, in uh, the Oval Office at the time. Um, and God, so God is not just some infinite. And also, I'd want to say this is the thing about being rather wary of certain sorts of philosophy. God is not just some infinite being picked off the shelf of generic infinite beings. Uh, that's where the particularity of scriptures and Christ is so important. But when it comes to the divine attributes, um, like divine mercy and divine justice, they're not just the way to understand them is not just like we understand justice and mercy, but just making them infinite. Divine omnipotence is not just like any power that we would know, but just um, infinite. Um, in fact, um, very much not. So I think omnipotence is a really good example. The, the, maybe the great example of omnipotence is creating the world out of nothing. And that's not primarily a quantitative thing, or if it is, that's not the most interesting thing. The fact is to make anything when there is absolutely nothing, no antecedent at all. Or to think about the, the, the infinite power of God and to say, we find it in the conception of Christ in the, in the Virgin's womb. We see it in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We see divine in, uh, omnipotence upon the cross, uh, Christ, Christ crowned with thorns, and we see it in the resurrection. It's just not power as we understand it, just raised to the infinite uh, extent. And similarly, um, justice and mercy. So I, I would say that simplicity is a much more integral, much more central way to thinking about how God is God and different from us than, than, than infinity, especially if understood in a quantitative way. So um, what does simplicity it means? Uh, what does simplicity mean? It means that God's justice is God's mercy and God's mercy is God's justice. And that seems to me much more subversive and interesting and getting to the heart of it than just to imagine somehow that divine justice is just infinite justice or something like that. Uh, and I'm afraid Scotus is an example of someone who says, what's God, what's, in, what's in omnipotence like? Well, if you can, if you can carry three pounds, you're stronger than if you can carry two pounds and uh, in, infinite power, just like being able to carry an infinitely heavy weight. Or he says, um, if you can know more things rather than fewer things, that's better. And divine omniscience is just like being able to know an infinite number of things. And that seems to me uh, mistaken, um, both because it doesn't see what's just so kind of characteristically, characterfully different about divine knowledge. But also, I think it because it's kind of tr remains trapped in a finite paradigm. It's still just about carrying weights. It's just still about knowing individual facts. It ultimately kind of um, domesticates d d the divine attributes by making them just like us, even if they're just um, quantitatively infinite. So I think we could do a lot that would be useful thinking about the maybe ill-advised ways in which we talk or incautious ways we talk about divine um, infinitude. Um, and, you know, not least the way in which all of this just seems to me to float so freely from the scriptural witness. Or well, for that matter, it's not so important, but it even seems to float free from the best of the ancient world's kind of pagan um, influence. So I, it, there's nothing in, in this about God being goodness, beauty, truth, being, um, you know, those sorts of things, uh, which you would find in Plato, um, or, you know, one and one who is simple and entirely full. It's, just, it's kind of seems to me not even decently pagan, never mind 
you know, there's nothing there of mercy or the one who forgives or God as father or the rock who bore you or the everlasting arms. Um, so it just seems to me so much of this discussion of infinitude, it's just a kind of generic God and it floats free, um, well, even of the best of the ancient world, of non-Christian nature world, never mind, which is, of course, the most important thing, uh, the God of the, the scriptures. Um, and I've said about how ultimately I think it's a kind of domestication of God because it keeps the paradigms within those of our finitude. So um, I'm going to move on and um, just conclude with some pastoral uh, reflections. Um, so this thing about finitude and, and knowledge, I wrote about this a little bit in the participation book. I think it's really helpful. Maybe this is tremendously obvious, but really helpful. Whereas a pastor all the time, well, you know, from time to time, you come across people who perhaps were quite fervent in youth and then they're saying, but now it just all seems so complicated or it's just, I'm just, um, I just, I'm not so sure anymore. And I think it's really helpful here to talk about finitude and to say, this is not because God isn't there, but it's because we are like, as Aristotle's image, it's like the bat trying to see the full sun. And that when people um, are feeling perplexed, it's, um, it's, it's, it's okay. You, you can say to them, it's okay. It's, um, it's, it's, not, it's natural for a finite creature to feel somewhat perplexed in the face of, uh, of God is infinite. And um, to try and help people see it as a kind of response to the surfeit of divine intelligibility rather than a kind of lack. I also find ideas of finitude quite important in spiritual direction and talking to people about uh, vocation and, and motivation. Um, so um, I think quite often people feel quite stuck and they don't know um, what to do. I come across this all the time, even just with, with students writing. So I've got all this material and I just don't know what, I'm overwhelmed by it. And I, I think one of the ways that's quite helpful there is to say, but finitude is always about creativity. There's a kind of um, underdetermination or a kind of surfeit about the way in which the finite can render anything. And therefore, just as my mother, who's a sculptor and an embroiderer, she, she's faced with a block of, of clay. She could do any number of things with it. And, and making it one finite thing is an act of creativity. In the same way, I, I help. I try to help people when they're feeling, even with something as simple as um, as writing an essay, but it could also be really big life decisions. To say it's the position of the finite being to have to act creative creatively, because there are just so many boundlessly many ways in which the finite could realise um, all that lies ahead. So just be bold and think of it like. The, the the artist and I think that, that tends to people uh, help people uh, help people a bit. Um, of, I've talked about the way in which, of course, many people are in a situation of of deprivation. But uh, for the people that I'm working with in an affluent place like Cambridge, of course, there are all sorts of human sadnesses. But um, often it's about helping people to recognise that it's a choice between good things, so they can have a certain liberty um, in, uh, in in choosing between good things. But I also find. Um, so I talked about finitude as, as an end. There's some really good writing that comes to us from Aristotle, ultimately, about means and ends and the way in which a we have proximate ends and immediate ends. 
So ends that are closer to us and ends that are, uh, sorry, proximate and ultimate. We have proximate ends um, and, and ultimate ends. And that um, the, the proximate end, the thing that you choose to do uh, sort of short term and nearby, uh, acts as a means for achieving a yet more ultimate ends. And in a sense, uh, our means and our ends kind of stack up so that they, um, the thing that we're ultimately wanting to do, the ultimate end, which of course ultimately is God, um, kind of tracks back through lots of more proximate ends until ultimately I've got to decide to get out of bed so that I can say my prayers, so that I can, so that I can, you know, leading on the way. And I find that quite a lot of discussions with people about motivation, especially when young people are lacking motivation, uh, I find it helpful to talk about this idea of the way in which we join up our means and our ends. So that um, if people are feeling completely sort of bewildered or lack because of so much choice or, or feeling a lack of motivation, then you can ask people what, their, what, what a more ultimate end is and then talk about the ways in which proximate ends become means to fulfilling them. So I'm afraid that's, sorry, rather uh, kind of tacked on, but um, I just wanted to get a little bit practical. And I think that um, the way in which finitude plays out not only in terms of the intellect, but also in terms of the will, um, and this idea of mediation of the more ultimate end through choosing more proximate ends um, ends up being really quite quite helpful practically. Um, so things we could talk about, we could talk about responding to people's perplexity, we could talk about these uh, themes of, um, of vocation and direction um, in, uh, in, in terms of uh, you know, finite choices that we have to make. We could talk about the ends of theology and whether sometimes what we need to aim for is a is a good enough theology and I sort of say that against myself about somebody who's always wanting to dot every I and cross every T. Um, could talk about um, the way in which I commended philosophy and also with some notes of caution and talk about the role of philosophy and philosophical theology in the life of the church so I don't think it helps anybody for us to think in a sloppy way um, and I think that the faithful that we work with can often take more complex ideas than we give them credit for. It's just that one has to do the hard work of, of trying to explain things clearly. Um, I think also that we need to avoid pride, both for ourselves and for others. Salvation is not primarily about sophistication. Um, I think that the inroads that atheism has made are partly because the people of God have not had the intellectual resources to push back um, at some things that are some of them pretty pretty bad misrepresentations and poor thinking um so uh stephen hawking a great scientist but his idea that um basically the role of god is to flip the first domino the beginning of the world and then when his theories do away with an edge to the world uh, or they do away with the beginning to the to the world yeah he says well we don't need god anymore i mean this is pretty elementary just fundamental misunderstanding of what christians think the relationship between creator and, and creature is and um all sorts of like really simple i think philosophical mistakes there uh, but for kind of uh, want of them um people you know the, the christians have suffered attrition and haven't been able to push back uh, but i do i don't think philosophy is the whole story i think that the, the glory and the beauty of, of the christian faith uh could is, is also it's, just the, it's theology as well as philosophy there's a wonderful set of essays by dorothy l sayers who some of you might know as a detective uh novel writer called it's probably on the shelf just down here called creed or, creed or chaos i really recommend them they're beautiful little essays and she um she said that she would appear on the bbc 
in the middle of the 20th century and give talks about Christology and Chalcedon or something. And people would write to her saying how extraordinarily creative she was and how absolutely amazing for her to have made all this stuff up and, you know, uh, how much more interesting it was than the kind of Christianity that they knew. And she wasn't doing anything other than, you know, telling them what uh, the church has been saying for a very long time. Um, uh, and she has this wonderful essay called um, The Drama is in the Dogma. Um, anyway, uh, and also I think a history, so the awareness of history is really really important um and i have come across some mission projects that had a strong philosophy or philosophical theology angle to them so I had a student who set something up in um in bristol in the uk which about once a month i think and it was for kind of seekers who had really philosophical questions and it does turn out that for maybe one percent of the population it's going to be talks on um um hegel that uh, that really you know pull on the on the heartstrings but it's not going to be everybody um, but I had thought that, you know, that maybe we'd get to the position where there'd be the Church of England, we'd, you know, we're trying to be there for everybody. We'd try to meet that by maybe having one kind of philosophical mission initiative in, in each city. But of course, what's changed that so much with a pandemic, but just more generally, is that so many things are done online now. So I'd love to hear from you about the way in which you think philosophy can uh, play a part for those people there are some people for whom it's a really important way in and whether maybe wanting to have a discussion group in every major city is not the way forward now but we we do these things now through uh, podcasts and online discussion groups and, and so on anyway on that and, and everything else i look forward uh, to your discussion and i think you've also had some bits and pieces of, of reading from uh, some snippets of things on finitude um, and i will stop talking Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Thanks again for listening to today's bonus episode with Dr. Andrew Davison. As always, give us a five-star rating, brief review at Apple Podcasts. And if the mentorship program sounds interesting to you, we are now accepting applications for the 2022 to 2023 term. You can learn more about the mentorship program at cfc.scbts.edu, or you can click the link in our show notes. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in just a few weeks with Season 3 of the Christ and Culture Podcast. Mm-hmm.